the, the goal was to condense it down into like a short little guide. Um, so it walks you through just all the fundamentals of nymphing, um, why it's such a successful tactic, how to how to do it on the stream, um, how to reach out water, what nymphs to use and why. Um, you know, everything with nymphing. And it's all in a condensed guide with lots of illustrations. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today, we're honored to have on the program Mike Canino. Now, Mike is out of upstate New York, an author. Uh, He has a book out right now called uh, Simple Nymphing for Trout in Rivers and Streams. He's a marine biologist uh, with New England, a fisheries biologist, and lives near the Catskill Mountains. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the program tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me, Mark. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. We've really got a lot of water, I think, that we can cover in in this podcast. And I always like to, Mike, kind of take it back to your roots and find out what, what brings you to the water and where does your passion for, for fish come from? Oh, that's a good question. I, You know, I've been trying to figure that out forever, like why I love fishing so much. And I, I have a couple of reasons. Um, you know, the first kind of reason is, you know, just the one activity that I find I'm getting, get completely immersed in. Um, I just think about nothing, but what exactly I'm doing right there in a moment. And then the other part is just, you know, it's just kind of a puzzle. I just like got to figure out, you know, if they're not biting right now, you know, it bothers me. I, I got to figure out why they're not biting, you know? So it's just like something I always continually work at and try to solve because it's always changing. So that's kind of why I love it so much. Mike, how did you come to discover fly fishing in particular uh, as, as a form of fishing? My um, aunt introduced me to it. Um, my dad and I have been fishing forever, but we primarily did uh, spinners. You casted spinners uh, um, in the streams. So, you know, I always saw fly fishermen around me when we were at the Delaware River mainly because I live about 40 minutes from there. So I always wanted to try it. So then my aunt actually introduced me to it. That's awesome. So, I mean, where did you go to school for, for your uh, marine biology, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, University of Delaware. Right on. So, I mean, you're basically totally immersed in the world of fish. I mean, I know we, we were going to chat a, a while back, but you'd mentioned you're out on the ocean uh, doing your day job for, for quite some time. Tell us where that takes you. Oh, yeah. So I work for um, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and I'm a commercial fisheries biologist. So I go out on commercial fishing boats on the North Atlantic. Basically, what I do is I go out there and I measure the discard that they catch. So everything that they're not keeping... So, for example, I mainly cover the sea scallop industry. 
So they might go out and try to to get sea scalps, and they're mainly focused on keeping sea scalps, mm-hmm. but they'll also catch other fish in the process that they're not interested in keeping for whatever reason, so they get discarded. So I keep a record of that. Right. Well, let's switch gears and get back to your uh, to your book you got out now. I understand it's doing really well. Now, the title is uh, Simple Nymphing for Trout in Rivers and Streams. Let's tell us... Uh, Tell the folks a little bit about how that book came to be and where that all started. Yeah, well, that basically started was, um, you know, I wanted to help catch people fish. Um, I've been nymphing for as long as I got into fly fishing. Um, I just think it's an incredibly effective way to catch trout, so I wanted to help people catch fish. All right. Makes sense. So um, tell us about your book, like how it's kind of broken down. I know there's lots of illustrations, and you've really kind of broken down nymphing. Yeah, so the whole idea of the book was to make it in a condensed kind of summary format because, you know, I love fly fishing, but I can even find it hard reading about it, you know, a full book. The, the goal was to condense it down into like a short little guide. Um, so it walks you through just all the fundamentals of nymphing, um, why it's such a successful tactic, how to, how to do it on the stream, um, how to read trout water, what nymphs to use and why, um, you know, everything with nymphing. And it's all in a condensed guide with lots of illustrations. Mm-hmm. I always think it's funny, you know, when you, you think of fly fishing, a lot of times dry fly fishing comes to mind, but let's face it, almost all your fish are going to be caught subsurface, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> I know that's what people love to do is dry fly fish, but if you really want to catch a lot of fish, you know, subsurface is the way to go. What's your go-to on the waters, on your home waters, when you're out there nymphing? Uh, are you Euro-nymphing? Are you using indicators? What does that look like? Well, you know, it really changes on the stream. Um, so I mainly fish the Delaware River, which is a pretty wide river, and it's got a pretty consistent flow everywhere um, and consistent depth. So I use an indicator and a, a bounce nymphing rig, and I find it's really good in those kinds of streams. Mm-hmm. If I'm fishing a smaller stream, you know, I'll, I'll do Euro nymphing, some sort of tight lining nymphing. I did notice some of your illustrations in there. I noticed you got a section on choosing the right patterns. If you had any advice to give to the average fly fisher that's out there on a medium-sized stream and, and wants to start with a nymph pattern, what would you say? Oh, you know, I'd say don't overthink it. Don't don't be so caught up in trying to match the hatch identically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, your generic nymphs like a here's ear, prince nymph, or a pheasant tail, those will pretty much work anywhere, any stream in the world. So I'd say stick with those. And the reason you can do that is because a lot of bugs in their nymph form look pretty similar to each other. And so it's, it's matching the hatch isn't, you know, as important as it is with dry fly fishing because the nymph forms look pretty similar. Something that comes up a lot, Mike, on the program, and I know we've talked about it on a few different episodes, is the actual fly patterns that you're using, suggestive versus realistic. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? Oh, you know, I'm more for suggestive, definitely. Because they look like a lot of Mm -hmm. different, they just look buggy, and they look like food. Um, a lot of different types of foods at once. Right. My experience with some of the realistic patterns is they can look really great in your hand, but underwater or surface, they don't, they don't look as good. 
Yeah, that, I think that's fair comment. And the other thing is the color change. I think sometimes people don't always take into account once that fly is wet. Yes, you're right. But the, the animal furs, the natural stuff. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about your ideal day. I like to always ask this question, too. If you could describe, Mike, your perfect day on the river or stream, what does that look like? Kind of paint us a picture. Um, when do you start in the morning? And, and kind of take us through it step by step. Oh, you know, so... My two best friends from high school, we've been fishing together ever since the whole high school. And uh, what we've always done is, since we got our licenses, uh, we've just been trying to, we drive as far as we can and we go camping and, and they're fishing trips. So I, the day would definitely begin with them and we'd all be in on the water. Um, and of course, we'd catch tons and tons of fish. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... I'd have to catch at least three more than that. I got to say, are you a competitive guy? No, you know, not really. But fishing is a different story. So you put a fly rod in your hand, it's a it's different yeah, story. Yeah, it's lights out. You know, I've become a different person. <laughs> We're chatting today with Mike Canino, author of Simple Nymphing for Trout in Rivers and Streams. Mike, if there's something you could change about the sport, maybe the way we approach it or something that kind of irks you just a little bit. Is there anything you'd like to see us do differently in fly fishing? You know, uh, I'd like to see like everybody get along a little bit more. Um, you know, some, some guys on the streams by me, you know, they ain't, they ain't too friendly. I, I wish, you know, we're, we're all, we're all about fly fishing. So I wish uh, everybody would be a little friendlier to each other. Yeah. I think that, I think that's fair comment. You know what? Something I'm curious about, who would you say, Mike, has been the biggest influence on your fishing? Uh, does a person or a couple of people come to mind? Yeah, two people really come to mind. Um, my uncle, for sure, he's the one that introduced me to nymphing. And he's really the one that taught me the fundamentals of nymphing. And ever since, you know, he really taught me that's primarily how I fish. I, I really like nymphing, and that's what I do the majority of the time. So he's a big influence. And the other real big influence is one of my best high school friends, Cameron Boglione. Uh And he's just like me. He takes fishing way too seriously. Um, so we, we're always competing and we're always talking about new tactics and just always pushing each other to fish better and learn more. So that's been a good relationship. It's amazing how those relationships, um, you draw so much from them on your time in the water that for me that they're really, really important. And and when you look back, sometimes you don't realize how you got to learn all the things you did. And I think if you look at your friend group and the the people that you spend most of the time in the water with, that's usually the answer. Yeah, that's absolutely it. If somebody wants to get their hands on your book and, and, and just basically make it simple, simple nymphing for trout and rivers and streams. And, um, just, a, it sounds like a solid go-to book for, for some great techniques and, and the illustrations I think are key in this. Where, where can they find it, Mike? It's available on Amazon.com. Um, you can get it in a, okay. a paperback or you can also get the ebook version. Okay. Now you have, you just mentioned to me off air that you're working on another book for this fall. Maybe, maybe tell the folks, give us a little insight on that one if you would. Oh yeah. So we're basically going with the same idea behind, you know, simple nymphing for trout. We're trying to keep it, a condensed format and summary of streamer fishing. So this one's going to be about streamer fishing for trout. 
And uh, I'm actually writing it with my best friend from high school. I told you that was a big influence on my life. Um, him and I are running it together because he's a real big streamer fisherman. Online, Amazon. It's also in paperback. Yeah, that's yeah, that's correct. You can. It's available in both paperback and ebook on Amazon. Yeah, thank God for ebooks. Yeah, they're great <laughs> when you want to just get out this weekend and you want it in your hands right away. If you were fishing a system near you uh, nymphing with indicators what's your go-to type of indicator because there's so many different styles i i think some people find it confusing the type that best suits the water they're fishing can you give us a little insight on that mike yeah geez there's so many different indicators out there i mean you know i don't really think there's any right answer you know it's really personal preference i think the two thing, things you want to consider is like the buoyancy so is it going to float um and adjustability. So you 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 constantly want to adjust your indicator up and down your leader to whatever water depth you're fishing. Overall, I'd say the adjustable thingamabobbers are best. Mm-hmm. I, I have used thingamabobbers quite a bit. I like them because um, anything you have down below, you can always take it off your line without cutting your line. Yeah, that's a great perk of them. I find it really fascinating. And to be quite honest with you, I, for as long as I can remember, have been trying to come up with a better way to come up with a strike indicator. I know there's there's probably 50 different styles out there. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit, but <laughs> always looking for, to make it simpler and more effective, you know, like, and, and less visible to the yeah. trout, but more visible to you. Right. What What have you come up with so far? You know what? You'll you'll laugh. I got these. Um, we used to call them. Uh, we used to call them dink floats, basically for fishing for salmon. They're basically like. A, I took these uh, tomato. You'll laugh. So this it keeps my tomato plants. Uh, it has like a foam collar, and I put my line through it, and I just put a little toothpick in there, and it works. But um, it's oh, okay. a work in progress. That's a work in progress. Uh, most of the ones I use are the ones with the little pin in them. You know, the foam. They're kind of shaped like a bell, so they're a little heavy on the bottom. So they they sit, they ride nice and high in the water. I've, ch- okay. I've tried just about everything. I've tried, Mike, just about everything to get my hands on. And like you say, there's there's no one perfect system. But for me, I really like those uh, kind of bell-shaped uh, bright pink or chartreuse with the pin. So you can lock the pin, and then when you set the hook, the pin comes out. Okay, all right. Yes, I know what you're talking about. I haven't, I haven't used those. But. I, I don't know the proper name for them even, but they, they work for me. I see a lot of people using yarn. I like those thingamabobbers. Uh, the airlocks, are, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to go, the little corkies. Um, as long as you can see it and it floats, I guess that's all that matters. Exactly. You want it floating. <laughs> when, you're, when you start fishing with an indicator with a nymph, do you start deep and work your way up or shallow and down what's your usual go-to thought process on that you know so you know roughly speaking you i kind of start my indicator uh one and a half times the water depth so if i like i'm looking out and i say it's two feet you know i'll put three i'll put it three feet above my um the bottom of my nymphing rig but in general yeah I'd, i'd start with it shallower and, you know, do a cast. And if it's not hitting the bottom, then I'd raise the indicator up, you know, and then I'd do another cast. And if it's still not hitting the bottom, then I'd raise the indicator up a little bit more. How are you getting that nymph down there normally? Are you are you tying with tungsten beads or are you using weight ahead of the fly? What, what does that look like? 
Yeah, so I normally use the drop shot balance nymphing rig. So I normally use unweighted nymphs, and I use split shot on the bottom of the rig. Okay, maybe you can explain how, how you tie a balance nymph rig. The whole goal of the balance rig is basically, instead of your standard nymphing rig, which has the weight above your two nymphs, the balance nymphing rig will have the weight below your nymphs. So that's going to be the bottom part of the rig, and basically, it's going to be dragging along the bottom, and then your nymphs are going to be elevated above the weights, up off the bottom, so they're less likely to get snagged. I mean, let's face it. So when you, when, if you see it bouncing too much, your chances are you're, you're hitting the bottom a little more than you want to, so you just bring it up, up a hair. I always struggle personally with that. Once I, when I throw the line out there, where do I start? Where in the water column? And to be quite honest, I usually start at the bottom and then start coming up. Okay. But maybe I'm doing yeah. it wrong. I don't know. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You, you know, you might be getting snagged a lot more in the beginning, yeah. but you eventually probably work your way to the right, the right spot, right? How important is it to be totally drag-free? You know, I'd say that's based, I'd say that's one of the most important things with nymphing or even most dry fly fishing is to get that dead drift completely drag free. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, you know, it's, it can be very hard to achieve. It, it, I'm always struggling doing it, but that's what you really want to shoot for is to get as dead drifting downstream as much as possible. Would you say that um, with your latest book, there's there's things to learn for the expert and the beginner? You know, does it appeal to both? Oh, yeah. You know, it is geared towards beginners. It's introductory to nymphing. But there's tons of tips um, that, you know, very experienced anglers have told me that, you know, they learn a few things from and they really enjoy it. Have you got any crazy fish stories from your time on the water in in upstate New York or, you know, the Catskills, anything that uh, comes to mind that was kind of weird that happened to you out there? You know, I got a lot of fish stories. I worked up in Alaska as well. Um, I was a fishery tech, yeah, studying salmon. We got a lot of bear stories. (laughs) (laughs) We've heard a few good bear stories. Let's let's, let's throw one out there. What happened? Oh, I don't know if I could top those. But, uh... We, um, well, what the job was, we got helicoptered in there. It was for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we spent uh, two and a half months at field camp. And then afterwards, we spent another month and a half at field camp out there. And we didn't see anybody else besides, you know, my other coworker. So it was a, it was a pretty crazy experience and cool job working up there. Yeah, I can imagine. So what, do you, what are you seeing up there, the big grizzlies and... Yeah, you know, a lot of grizzlies. Um, yeah, I had a, a few close calls with them. So when you're fishing waters like that, Mike, are you, are you guys usually have a shotgun or some, some bear spray? What do you have for protection? Yeah, we had a 12-gauge with us the whole time um, and an air horn. And honestly, I, it sounds funny, but I think the air horn is probably one of the best protections against grizzlies. Because we would, as we were walking on the stream, and, you know, we were always by ourselves. There's nobody else up there. So, you know, every minute or two, we'd walk up on the stream and we'd honk the horn. Just so the bears were aware that we were there. Right. And, you know, there was there were so many times where we would move around a corner after we honked the air horn. And there'd be a fish flopping up on the bank, you know, or just a real fresh 
eating one on the bank. And you know that bear was just there like 30 seconds before us. <laughs> it's got to be a weird, weird feeling when you see a fish out of water like that. Yeah. You know, the air horn worked. You know, <laughs> it was just there. Did you ever have to fire that air horn kind of at a bear? Not the air horn. Um, we had some. We had cracker shells and rubber bullets. Um, we had a bear we called Albert that would come to camp every day, <laughs> and you, we'd shoot him with rubber bullets pretty much every day. <laughs> he just didn't get the uh, get the hint. No, he he. It didn't work. He came back every day, <laughs> and it didn't bother him. You know. <laughs> Sounds like you fished a lot of waters, Mike, all over all over the the continental uh, U.S. Um, what's your favorite species to target? I love salmon fishing, but I, I probably have to go with, uh, brown trout. Mm-hmm. What is it that you love so much about brown trout? You know, they're tough. They're real tough to catch. Um, I, I really like trying to go for the big ones now. So I just, a real big brown and a lot of the streams out East, you know, it could be, it's really challenging to try to land one of those. They seem to be, I don't know if I want to say smarter, but what what makes them more difficult to catch, in your opinion? Browns or rainbows or... No, but I mean, what, what makes brown trout specifically so difficult? You know, is it the where they live? Is it their habits? You know, as a fisheries biologist, you probably have a lot of insight into some of these things. In your mind, if you had to say, what, what makes browns so, so difficult? You know what I always acquaint it to, like, and I don't, I don't hunt anymore. But when I did hunt, uh, I always thought of whitetails and, and muleys. Muleys to me are not as smart. Whitetails, they're habitual, but they know they're, they know they become very nocturnal. I, I suspect browns are in that vein too. You know, they did when the predators are around, they're probably not around. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Just like whitetails, I, I don't know. I wish I did. Yeah, no, that's cool. It's just, uh, these are things I think, I got some weird thoughts on fishing, but what else, what can we talk about, Mike? What can we cover that we haven't covered in your book that you'd like to uh, to let people know about? You know, the, I'd say the majority of people in fly fishing are most interested in dry fly fishing, um, which is great. You know, you always should do whatever type of fishing you're most comfortable with and you want to do, you're happy with. But mm-hmm. there's so many other aspects of fly fishing like streamer fishing and nymphing that are just other great really effective tactics and i'd encourage people to go out and you know learn some new tactics and skills and go out of their comfort zone a little bit and i think you'll just become well more rounded angler you'll you'll end up catching more fish and you'll learn more and i think it'll be good well the thing is too is i think you don't with when you're nymphing, you don't have to rely on the hatches. Those nymphs are there all the time, and not necessarily emerging, but always there. That Yeah, that is a great point. Yeah, with dry fly fishing, you really, most of the time, are subject to a hatch, and that's when you'll catch fish. But other than that, you know, there's feeding subsurface. In your neck of the woods, uh, in the upstate New York area, Mike, if you wanted to go and chat, fly fishing or fins is there a local coffee shop or tackle shop or fly shop that you frequent that's uh your go-to the west branch angler um on the delaware river you know i've always liked going there and talking to those guys this is kind of a weird question but 
being that you're immersed in the industry as a fisheries biologist and an author and an avid fly fisherman and spend all this time up in Alaska, do you ever overdose on fly fishing? <laughs> well, my my ex-girlfriend might, might think so, but I, I don't think there's such a thing. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought you might say, but I, I'm always curious. Like, I'll give you an example. Okay. So I, I just, I think I live and breathe for fishing, but when, to be quite honest, after five days with a couple of guys in the cabin hitting the water, it's just like, okay, uh, I think I need a day or two off, but some, some people I talk to don't need that, that time off. Yeah. No, I totally, I, I get that. You know, I wish, sometimes I wish I was one of those types. But I, I think I like fishing a little too much. What do you do when you're out on the water? Like, so when you're doing your day job, I mean, I'm sure fishing's kind of on the brain. Is there a lot of takeaways that you take from from your time as a fisheries biologist that help you catch fish in your leisure time? Yeah, you know, there was a lot, mainly for my Alaska fisheries job, because my current one is ocean fish, which there's still a lot of takeaways, but plus applicable. Um, yeah, so I learned a lot up there in Alaska studying salmon and trout. Some of the big takeaways, well, I mean, so I was mainly studying anadromous fish up in Alaska, but even resident fish like uh, brown trout and rainbows, um, a lot of fish will migrate quite a bit daily and even seasonally. So that was a big kind of takeaway. I learned. How do you how do you mean that migrate within the river system? Yeah, so so I'll talk about a, a daily kind of migration. I I I generally see with trout is you know when a hatch is a, like beginning to happen, it's just starting to take off. I'll see a lot of trout move into the heads of pools or the riffles area, and what they're doing mainly is feeding on nymphs and trying to get them in the shallower area where it's easy for them. And then once the hatch is like full blown is what I found. And there's just, they're on the insects are mainly on the surface. Then they'll drop back to the slower moving water and feed on the surface insects. Have you, have you found that true in Canada? Yeah. I, I, to be honest with you, I have noticed that. I don't know if I'd verbalize it quite as well as you just did, but I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's always, I find in the river, it's those trout or fish that you're targeting want to spend the least amount of effort possible. And, and once a hatch really gets going, they can probably hang out in the slack water. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a- I don't know. Does that make sense? That's kind of what I've observed. See, it's funny because I come at this from two angles. Like, I do a lot of lake fishing, and it, it's... Yeah. For me, it's always a little more challenging on the still water because the fish have time, right? They got time to sit there and study and go, you know what, that doesn't look quite right. But in a river, I think, you know, that big mac is floating by. They're going to, you know, eight times out of ten, they're going to take a swipe at it unless it's really heavily pressured. Well, I completely agree with you. Um, and that's one of the big reasons why I fish you know, pretty fast water in general. I try to stay away from the slow pools because they just have so much time to follow your fly and look at it and then reject it. And they don't have that time in the fast moving water. Have you got any tips or tricks um, for leader material that you like to use that's maybe um, whether using fluoro or or just um, monofilament? What do you like to use for leader material when you're nymphing? 
I personally prefer floral. You know, it's it's more resistant to abrasion, so when you're nymphing and you're right on the bottom, I think that's a big plus. They say it's less visible to fish, uh, so I haven't tested that out, but I, I kind of agree with it, so there's that aspect, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I think, too, the clearer the water, you know, if it's not stained at all, that fluoro can be a big difference maker, can it? Yeah, I think so, totally. I think it's funny, too, though, like, if you have any doubt in your mind that something's not right with your setup, if you don't change it, you might be spinning your wheels. Yeah, yeah, you should always try to experiment and change. Yeah, so when you hit a river, say, say like the Delaware... Um, okay. What do you normally start with? If I was to take your fly box, open it up, look in there, and say, "Okay, Mike, what do you what are you tying on first? Um, you know, assuming there's no big hatch staring you in the face, what kind of searching pattern uh, are you are you starting with?" Yeah, so what I would prob- what I my go to usually is is a pheasant tail um, on the bottom fly, maybe in a little bit smaller size. I always find smaller is just less for a fish to analyze and reject. So I think I always go kind of smaller on the bottom and then I'll put a Prince nymph on the top. Um, I think the Prince nymph, you know, it just looks buggy. It looks like a lot of different things. And with that soft tackle, it could even look like an emerger. So you just got that going for it. So I'll put that off the top, the top one. Makes sense. And that's that's getting back to that suggestive versus realistic, right? You know, like, it could be a lot of things, right? Yeah, you know, actually just yesterday I was fishing at the Delaware and there was a caddis hatch. And I took my um, great thing and I, I found some caddis pupas. And you know what? I was looking at the pupas next to my prince nymph. And you know what? That, that uh, peacock curl body, you know, it could look like... Uh, a pupa, a caddis pupa, and some fast water. So, you know, it looks like a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. It could be a mayfly. It could be, it could be a large midge. It could be, it could be a small caddis. Yeah, I, I totally get it. And that's, I, I find that, you mentioned before, we tend as anglers to overthink things. We always want to match the hatch exactly. But I think sometimes if you take a step back and say, okay, this could be a lot of different insects. There's a good searching pattern is always a, a safe bet to start. Yeah, that's what I would do for sure. So speak to when when you start trying to dial that in. So when you start taking fish, let's say you've, you've got your Prince Nymph pattern on and it's working, do you try and zone in then? Like would you fish two Prince Nymphs or do you not You always have a, a <laughs> dropper or something else? You know, I was... I was um, debating this yesterday because I had the Prince Nymph on and it was really working. And I, I didn't know if I should put the, the second Prince Nymph on or just keep that pheasant tail that I had on. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the right answer is, you know. I, I kept the pheasant tail on because... Have you ever had a double header on one setup? I never have, no. My buddy, um, <laughs> yeah, my buddy... One stream he was fishing, he sent me a video the other day, and he, he got like a couple of doubleheaders in a row. But Wow. Yeah, have you? Uh, no, no. Well, actually, to be quite honest with you, where I'm at, you can't fish with two flies. It's just uh, just one. Oh, so, okay. Um, every, every kind of province, every kind of region is different. But um, 
it's not legal in in british columbia so um no <laughs> short answer no but i know in alberta you can do it okay so all it right. just depends where you're at all right yeah we have some streams by us but um the single fly only well i have a hard enough time I have a hard enough time not getting wind knots and rat's nests with one fly. If throw another one on there, I think I'm in for it. Yeah, two flies, more problems. <laughs> but I think a lot more success, too, you know, yeah. because you can really dial it in, you know? Yeah, you can dial it in quicker. And my personal theory is, well, like, the prince nip on top, say, I, I think maybe, you know, one day it's not catching fish. And it, like I said, I had a pheasant tail on the bottom yesterday. Um, maybe there's been scenarios where the pheasant tail is catching all the fish and the prince nymph's not catching anything. But I, I think that maybe the prince nymph can kind of gra- grab their attention and then they go for the more realistic pheasant tail on the bottom. Mm, interesting. You know, one fly can attract while the other one actually catches them. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. That's uh, It's almost like you're stimulating a hatch. Or, yeah. you, you know what I mean? You, you, you throw some, it's like having a, it's like when you're hardware fishing and you got that big uh, dodger and then you got the hoochie at the back end. It's like, oh, yeah. I'll go grab that. <laughs> yeah. So you've yeah. done lake trolling as well? Oh, man. Yeah. That, you name it. So I think, you know, you, you spoke to it. Usually we start with spinning gear. And yeah, I've done lots of, um, lake fishing for larger fish with with gear and that's a lot of fun too but i think the thing is with the fly rod anytime you can like i'd much rather take a a large trout on a bucktail than a than a lure if you can because that fight is that much better right okay but yeah no it's um i mean it's a different we do all kinds of weird wonderful things up here where i'm at there's lots of different opportunities but that's why i love fly fishing because wherever you're at you can make it your game like i mean uh, there's i hear of guys fly fishing for tuna wow yeah that's um pretty crazy yeah they get the yeah on the uh, yeah they get these smaller uh, yeah i was watching a fishing show the other day and they were actually sight casting these things that look pretty wild but um you probably see you probably see a lot of tuna on your europe being in the new england area yeah you know because i work out on scallop boats so the scallop fishermen are constantly shucking the scallops and they're throwing the guts back in the water. So mm-hmm. basically they're chumming the ocean. And so we got tuna all the time that hang out right next to the boat and they're just gulping up the scallop guts as uh, they're going overboard. Yeah, well, that'd be quite a sight. That's that's something that I've never experienced. I'd love to see it one day. Those those tuna get just giant, don't they? Yeah, the blue fins, oh, 1,000 pounds they can get. Even bigger, I think. Crazy. I can't imagine. I think yeah. uh, at some point, when, when you start getting into uh, anything that size, it's it's a different beast for sure. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine bringing one of those in a fly rod. <laughs> Let's talk about your kind of wish list this year. What do you, What is your 2019 shaping up? I know you got this new book in the works on streamer patterns. Is that taking up a lot of your spare time right now? Yeah, it is. It really, it's uh, been a lot. That's taken up most of the time. Mm-hmm. Any trips coming up? Any fishing trips you can tell us about? I don't have any big trips planned, no. You know, I'm pretty fortunate. Like, I, I went uh, in the Catskills fishing, like, three times last week. So, I get a lot of time off. So, I'm always fishing. 
Is that because you're out at sea for so long? Then you get that you you realize that time off when you get back to shore. Yeah, so I'm out at sea for like a week to two weeks, and then I get a whole week to two weeks off. Does it take a while to get your legs back when you when you get back home? You know, yeah, the the sleep, the, the sleep, because you work at completely different shifts out there, so adjusting sleep wise coming back can be tough. Mm-hmm. Sea legs. It doesn't happen anymore, but when I first started, um, I got back from trips. Sometimes I would get queasy coming off the boat, like the reverse opposite of being seasick. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you probably but, know from downrigger fishing, um, well, trolling, just even, right? If I've, you know what I find, and this will sound funny, but if you're out on a boat standing up in waves for any amount of time, like uh, we were fishing like eight, 10 hour days to get off the water, and I, f- I still felt like I was in the boat. You know what I mean? You got that kind of right. side to side thing going on for yeah. a couple, couple hours. But uh, I'm sure you get accustomed to it. Like in your line of work, that's probably something your body gets used to. Yeah, it doesn't happen anymore. You know, I've, I've been adjusted. It took me about a year. Yeah. Hey, Mike, I really want to thank you for taking the time to chat. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, and I look forward to reading uh, your book in its entirety, um, Simple Nymphing for Trout in Rivers and Streams. I wish you success, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me, Mark. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. We've been chatting today with Mike Canino. Uh, out of upstate New York, author of Simple Nymphing for Trout in Rivers and Streams. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines, and we'll see you on the water. Thank you.